Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everybody. Today is a great day. My name's Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group, and I've got an incredibly special guest today. I have Amir Adnani, uh, and he is the President and CEO of Uranium Energy Corp., a publicly traded corporation, and we need uranium really bad. We got a lot of material to cover, so let me jump right on in, uh, Edmir. How are you? Well, you know, I'm good, and I appreciate you having me on, and I don't know if you planned it or timed it like this, but literally 41 minutes ago, U.S. Senators John Barrasso and Joe Manchin have introduced bipartisan legislation to ban imports of Russian uranium into the U.S. This speaks- Wow, this- cool. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry. This is big. It's big. It's, it's, uh, I, I, I mean, this is exactly really a validation of what we're talking about, what we're here to talk about, which is the fact that we need uranium desperately. It is the only commodity coming out of Russia, which hasn't been sanctioned yet, which speaks to how reliant we are on it, that we can't get ourselves off of this addiction to Russian uranium. And the reality is that it is absolutely an essential fuel, a critical mineral that's powering one in every five home in America is powered by nuclear energy. And it's also powering the nuclear Navy, not to mention space travel by NASA and SpaceX. So this is a really critical metal that we need to produce here in the US. We have zero domestic production capabilities right now. And again, became way too dependent on Russia. But I gotta say, I am thrilled to see this bipartisan action being taken by Senators Barrasso and Manchin. This is incredible stuff. And anyways, very timely, to be with you talking about this. I'll tell you what, I'm going to have my uh, production team really uh, spin this around. We'll get it out tomorrow so that we can help jump on that. This is critical because the geopolitical problems that we have right now with the energy crisis, we need modular reactors, we need everything else, and your company is phenomenal. I love the ability of your production. You have 3.1 million a million pounds of contracted purchases through December 2025. That's huge. That's that's only what we've contracted to purchase. We have, in addition to the 3.1 million that has been contracted to be purchased, over 300 million pounds of uranium resources in the ground that we can develop and bring into a staged production growth for the company, which could uh, be very much and is, in fact, the largest uranium resource base in North America. In the U.S., we're the largest resource holder. In Canada, we're now a big player as well. We see Canada and U.S. as the perfect one-two punch in providing geopolitically stable uranium from reliable sources. Where would you rather get your uranium from? Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Russia, or would you rather get it from Texas, Wyoming, and Canada, Saskatchewan, which is also another very mining and energy-friendly province? So this is the story 
of the new world order that we live in. We are unfortunately right. heading towards a bifurcated market where supply chains of important energy right. commodities are becoming bifurcated. Russia will hold anyone hostage who needs their energy resources to drive right. their own agenda. Uh, China could very much do the same thing, except China doesn't have much in terms of energy resources. So they're in competition right. with the U.S. to secure their own access to uranium and natural wow. gas and oil. So I think at the end of the day, we we are living through a, a paradigm shift in how people and how right. consumers think about supply chains. Right. You could argue it all started with COVID. You could argue it started when we woke up and we said, where do we get pharmaceuticals from? Where do we get the basic essentials that we need when the supply chain stopped coming? Right. But with Russia, we have an energy supply chain crisis. And of course, we have a humanitarian crisis. What's happening in Ukraine is a humanitarian crisis and absolutely wrong, but it has this ripple effect into the whole world. And the right. world needs energy. Energy is life. And without controlling your own energy destiny, you, you might as well give up on controlling your, right. your, your ability to control industries and industrial activity and day-to-day -day, uh, life at home where we got to charge and recharge electric vehicles or devices and telephones right. and iPhones and Samsung, all this stuff, right? So this is so vital to be able to control right. our own energy destiny. I'll tell you, with trying to get to carbon net zero, we won't make it without nuclear and natural gas. And without having your resources at the Uranium Energy Corporation, I don't think it can happen. I believe that uh, Russia may be 50% of the available uranium out there, whatever that number is, it's a lot. Um, and so you sanction that and pull it out of the market. I love everything that I've ever seen about your corporation. Uh, also with the small modular reactors and our problems with the grid, you have a long term viability for a market because I think we're going to need those small modular reactors. First of all, this is very much a long term game. We have been at this for 18 years. You might look at our company today. You might look at Uranium Energy right. and say, this is a cool company. Look at all the things they're doing that's so unique. And it is true, but it's 18 years in the making. And in those 18 years, we've had 15 bad years and three good years. And so for the most part, it's been a ton of perseverance right. and a very dedicated focus and, and commitment to the idea that, as you said, we've believed for a long time as right. a company and our shareholders and our team and our stakeholders that nuclear energy was going to have to play a critical role in any energy mix moving forward right. if we're honest about decarbonization. These considerations really came to be accepted more broadly in the last year, year and a half. It wasn't until last summer, hasn't even been a year right. since nuclear energy and natural gas, as you correctly point out, were both included in the European taxonomy as one example of acceptance. It wasn't until 30 days ago that we saw an all-time high public opinion poll in Japan in favor of nuclear energy. Yes. And that country, home to the Fukushima problems with nuclear power that started in 2011, now embracing nuclear energy, now saying that what happened in Fukushima is under control and not... Right. A, a tragedy because no one died. And now we understand that in order to have our own 
energy needs under control. We need to turn our reactors back on and we got to build more reactors. The Japanese people are saying that. The Japanese government has done this pivot. And here in the US, to have a Republican senator teaming up with a Democrat senator in a bipartisan fashion to advocate for US uranium and banning Russian uranium imports, how many things in Washington, how many causes or topics in Washington have this kind of bipartisan support? So you are absolutely right. And I think you hit it on the hill, hit the nail on the head that there is this acceptance and understanding now, like right. never before, that to have a credible energy policy aimed at addressing atmospheric issues and decarbonization right. must include nuclear energy. And we're seeing a unprecedented level of support. Oh, you bet. Like never Uh, seen before. Amir, uh, when you take a look at the U.S. market, uh, we have a ballpark of, what, 90 nuclear reactors. France has a ballpark of 50, and they may have a bunch of them offline for maintenance and things like that. Is the U.S. uh, a the leading customer for your things? And then France? And then who would be after that? Sorry. U.S. is number one. The largest consumer of uranium in the world for power generation is the U.S. with over 90 units currently operating. U.S. is also the epicenter of the emerging growth and technological innovation that we're witnessing for small and advanced modular reactors. Right. The U.S. Navy with over 100 aircraft carriers and submarines that are all powered by nuclear energy in the form of micro reactors are also an end user of nuclear, not to mention in the uh, nuclear medicine in every hospital, and not to mention, again, even the needs of NASA and SpaceX for space travel. All of this requires uranium. But if we just focus on the following, I mean, this is what I think people should pay attention to. This is the one takeaway from this interview is with all that demand that we have just in the US, we produce no uranium today. This is the craziest thing I've ever seen. What other commodity do you know that plays such a critical role that we are such a large end user of and we produce none of it domestically? 60%, 6-0 of uranium imports into the US last year were from Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. We used to have a domestic uranium mining industry in the US. It used to be the biggest in the world. And after the end of the Cold War, we basically destroyed that industry because we wanted to dismantle Soviet era warheads and right. took the uranium out of those warheads and blended them into use for electric utilities. Those days are over. Right. We are witnessing a Russia that literally wants to take the clock back and reignite the Soviet Union era and right. is creating conflict that is that that's just unseen. And So you have this issue now where Western end users are realizing that they cannot rely on Russia for their energy supply chains. And if you do, they're going to hold you over a barrel. Look at what's happening in Germany. My friends in England, my friends in Germany tell me their monthly energy bills is four times to 10 times greater than what it used to be. Some people saw an article this morning on that, Amir, uh, on the BBC. It is amazing how expensive the energy has gotten. And this and these are the points that uh, shouldn't be lost that again to to and this is why I think it used to be that before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there was this movement that recognized that we have a mega trend with decarbonization that favors nuclear energy. Right. And then we realized that there was this other mega trend with electrification that also favored nuclear energy. Right. 
But now we have a different mega trend, which is energy security, which combined yes. with the other two, which haven't gone away, you have decarbonization, electrification, right. and now national security concerns. Those three mega trends converge and arrive at the doorsteps of nuclear energy, wow. because these are exactly the issues that nuclear energy has the perfect solution for. I the love fact- your... Sorry, yeah, I, mean, I didn't. I get so excited about talking about this with you because the mega trends that you just described, you're not going to get to electrical vehicles. You're not going to get anywhere there without nuclear. And I love the way you phrased uh, mega trends because they are mega trends. Yeah. I have not really even used that one before. Well, and the other thing I would say is this we have this incredible sort of movement right now. Uh, I was at a mining conference recently. All the largest institutional investors are there right. and they're meeting and, and, and the car end users were there. So this was never seen before. At a mining conference, you have representatives of Tesla, General Motors, Ford, Mercedes Benz at this conference meeting with the mining companies right. and wanting to invest directly into the lithium mines. Now let's talk about lithium right. for one second because lithium is used for the lithium ion batteries to build these electric vehicles. And so this year you have these car makers showing up to say we believe we have to secure our access to the supply chain of the right. end material that we need. We can't rely on any middleman. They're at the conference. They want to buy the mines. And you have to remember that these batteries that go into these cars don't just recharge on their own. They have no. to be charged with something. And so that's where the uranium is so overlooked right now. There's such a focus on electrification as a function of batteries. And the most basic thing we all know about batteries is batteries need to be recharged. They don't recharge themselves. No. And so then if you anticipate where the ball is going, it's ultimately going to go back to the grid because grid reliability and stability right. is how all the things that we want to electrify will ultimately need to be recharged. And I think the same right. way that you're seeing Teslas of the world and General Motors of the world show up in mining conferences to want to buy lithium mines a couple right. of years from now, you're going to have the utilities or end users of uranium show up at these conferences to want to buy uranium mines because ultimately we have to have this supply chain covered from right. start to end. And um, was it Iran that just discovered lithium in their country? I saw, I saw that. Yeah, that was an interesting article. Someone sent that to me. But that's the thing with lithium is lithium is quite abundant. Okay. Right. But if you're Tesla, does it really matter to you that Iran that's under sanction and we can't accept their supply source just as much as we can accept Russian uranium has right. lithium deposits? Right. It's the same problem with uranium. You might find uranium in many different jurisdictions, but the problem is, is it economically viable? Is there right. a political and mining framework to be able to get permits and approvals and community right. acceptance? And there's so many checkpoints before you can say that I can so socially and sustainably and economically build a mine. Right. So oh, yeah. this, these are, and these are the hurdles that we've cleared as a company. I mean, for the past 18 years, our focus has been on identifying projects and land and areas and building infrastructure right. and acquiring infrastructure that was conducive to future uranium extraction and recovery. And to be positioning ourselves in states and jurisdictions that welcome it, that have a history of it, that understand it, and there's a regulatory framework. So again, it takes a long time. This is the thing about metals and mining 
industries, it's capital intensive, it's very long-term. Right. And so what that also means is that if a company has an 18-year head start, that's a real competitive advantage. Oh. Uh, and it allows you to be able to move that much faster to react to favorable market conditions as they emerge. And you have to remember, uranium has not been a favorable market for most of the no. last decade. So this has been a very contrarian and counter-cyclical type of commodity to be in or right. to still be in. Today, you were having this conversation, but the mainstream media and mainstream investors are not paying attention to uranium because right. it's still a very small niche industry, but, right. so but a very critical one and definitely see, a very critical mineral. I did see your great interview on CNN. And, <laughs> and, and so I was kind of watching that one for a little bit. And I think that the acceptance is coming more, yeah. uh, you know, and you're visiting with folks like me that get the reach out there in different areas other than the mainstream news. Yeah. Um, I think that's critical for you. Do you get tired of podcasts? Absolutely not. I'm extremely <laughs> passionate about what we do and what our company has built. And I think it's really important to tell our story and get our message out. And so I absolutely right. feel really privileged when we get an opportunity like this right. and to uh, speak with different outlets and platforms. I'll tell you, uh, uranium energy, uh, I was looking at some of your data points as well. And I did not know on some of your uh, production plants, you don't have to use the overall uh, strip mining in order to get the uranium. And I, I love the fact that you could uh, pump that down and, and go into that. It's not what people think about the mining and getting out uranium. Is that a correct statement? Absolutely. In fact, it's better and probably more correct not to call it mining. It's basically recovery and it's solution recovery. And it's an incredibly unique technology that was developed in the U.S. Uh, many decades ago, and then we forgot about it. And then the Kazakhs and the Uzbeks decided to use the same technology to mine their deposits this way, which is basically an alternative to strip mining. So there is no digging and there's no excavations. There's no big hole in the ground. Right. These are very attractive features because, again, if you can have an environmentally friendly way of recovering uranium, right. uh, you will only have that that much more support from from your end users from your local communities and etc so ultimately we have a big advantage in the us we have an advantage mm -hmm. that the best way to recover uranium is this institute recovery technology it's very innovative it's very low cost and yep. it's environmentally friendly and it's a made in america technology and we still have many of the know-how and expertise around it in this country. And one of the areas that I'm so proud of with our company is that we focused on recruiting and building a team. So our human capital is really rich in expertise and experience with this method of mining. And the folks we have in Texas and Wyoming are some of the pioneers of this really uh, great method. You know, Amir, you hit almost your company. I'm sorry for getting excited because we need this energy security. And your company is hitting every one of my check boxes because we need to provide the lowest cost energy to the population, the consumers with the least amount of impact on the environment. And you're hitting every single one of those. Well, this is a part of what we're trying to capture as well in our inaugural sustainability report that we're releasing um, uh, hopefully by next week. Nice. We, take this, we take this very seriously. In fact, one of the areas that we also paid attention to is to measure the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that our operations had 
because we felt that if, oh. we could, if we can recover uranium and we know the uranium that we get out of the ground is ultimately going to be used in a nuclear power plant to generate emission-free electricity. Now, what right. if we were able to clear a, uh, build a supply chain from the ground out, decarbonized right. all the way to the plant that generates emission-free electricity? If you can create that continuous chain- That's huge. That's huge. And so we are embarking on this. We've talked about it a bit, but we are embarking on establishing the first in the world net zero uranium recovery operations. And so we've done the measurements in Texas. We're going to do the same thing in Wyoming. We believe that through our innovation, and this is really American ingenuity and innovation, we start to apply ourselves to an industry that we left alone for 30 years. We come back and we start to bring our principles, our Western principles of transparency, of innovation. These ideas can lead to even better ways of recovering uranium, cleaner ways of recovering uranium, emission-free net zero uranium for emission-free electricity generation. So I, we really believe in it. And again, we're talking about it. We're spending, investing in this and we'll talk more about it in our sustainability report that's coming out. Uh, This is exciting because when you take a look at the investors for ESG, BlackRock lost $1.7 billion no, 1.7, was it 1.7 trillion last year in the first half of the year? I mean, it was just amazing because they were investing in renewables that were supposed to be ESG. What you, Amir, what you just described is truly ESG when you consider the baseline that nuclear power brings in, in carbon zero from the mine to the plant. Uh, man, all uh, bets are off. Uh, honestly, you can call it whatever you want, but what about just common sense, right? And so, yes. whether it's, and I think, I think that's the part of ESG that really appeals to us is to unpack it and say, what's the common sense here that we can actually make a difference with as a company? And so, wow. this idea of net zero uranium is what we felt was what ESG was trying to achieve. And, 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 and but you have to break it down. It can't be high level kind of management consultancy talk. It's got to be tangible action that you can say, how do I as a company actually make a difference and impact to a supply chain or to some very, some equation that more than anything uh, makes a product or service available, but again, does it with principles and standards that are relevant and top of mind in today's world. And, and, and everyone's wondering about this, you know, and, and, right. Uh, from, you know, my own kids wonder about, uh, how, you know, how to reduce their carbon footprint. So nothing, nothing wrong with the good kind of common sense approach. I'll tell you, Amir, I cannot wait to read your report. And I've always said also that there is no ESG without accountability. So, you know, it sounds like without not knowing what you've already got in there, it sounds like you've already got your accountability to your shareholders in place and rolling through this plan. That's darn cool. Well, look, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are without our shareholders. We're a public company. We have some of the biggest institutions uh, in America as shareholders. Management have been here since day one. We got thick skin in the game and we were were really aligned with our shareholders. And over the years as a U.S. public company, you evolve with the evolution of the capital markets. You evolve with the ongoing need for increased transparency, uh, increased communication. And I've always found it to be Really, these are all great principles. These are, you know, it's it's right. it's like if you, you know, learn to run, 
you learn over time, it's good to stretch a lot and it's good to, you know, be consistent and it's good to develop practices that again, creates sustainability. And ultimately, I think that's the other aspect of this that we got to come back to when you as a utility or end user buy uranium from a US company like ours, right? we are operating under a certain framework and mentality that aligns with a US buyer. We're all public. We all talk the same language and legally and from a practical point of view, when you buy uranium from a state-owned company in Russia, you're, where's yeah, the accountability? Where's the accountability? I mean, this, this is the thing where Senator Bross was talking about today. They're saying, hey, U.S. utilities, if you buy uranium from the Russian government, you're basically assisting them in war. You're basically sending U.S. dollars over to a state that's engaged in war, and you're basically funding war. Not only are you right. funding war, this company has zero alignment with U.S. values today, with trans, all this stuff we're talking about here today, ESG, right. transparency, sustainability, these are very North American concepts, and they may be very much Western concepts that we don't see right. exercised by state-owned companies. No. And we've relied heavily in this country on our uranium imports on state-owned companies of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Russia. And that's another area to just wake up and say, hey, like, put your money where your mouth is. If you want to keep telling U.S. public companies to do business a certain way, then right. why not support those companies as well who are talking, you know, walking the talk as opposed to saying, oh, well, let's just buy it from the state-owned companies because maybe that's cheaper. Well, again, there's a price right. you pay with everything and aligning yourselves with states and actors that are engaging in war doesn't really sound like an appealing alignment to me. Oh, absolutely. Okay. You and I have had a battle of excitement to talk about your company and the uranium. We got about two minutes. Can you, sure. we have your uh, great news uh, about the legislation? We have your great news of your ESG and your sustainability report coming out. What's coming around the corner other than those two great things? You got anything else for the last two minutes? The last. Well, I think I think I think really for the last uh, two minutes, I would I would really just step out for one second and sort of say that hey, we are talking about an industry here that has really spent too many years in the doghouse and is now coming out and flying like people have never seen before in terms of, again, the broad acceptance that we talked about and the bipartisan support that we're witnessing. What that means is that I think we are entering a long-term period of positive developments and growth for the nuclear industry in the US and globally, and hand in hand with that, the uranium industry. The uranium industry today is tiny. The combined market cap of all publicly listed companies, including the all global players, right. is less than $20 billion. Th- that is less than, let's say, an a st- audio streaming company like Spotify. You're talking about a strategic metal, and that's how tiny it is. At its peak in 2010 or 2007, when it was a bad, much better market, that same number was $150 billion. So this is an industry that has, again, been through a very long nuclear winter. Wow. Things have turned. And so what I would really leave your audience with is to say, there's many years, I believe, of positive progress, growth ahead of us for our company, for our industry, both as an uranium industry and also as a nuclear industry. And I think if you follow this company and this industry, uh, it could be very rewarding and it could be very interesting. And all that information is uh, out there as a a public company, very easy to track and follow. I'll tell you, your shareholders, this is critical. 
This is such a great thing. Thank you, Amir, so much. I just really appreciate you. Uh, We have so many followers and listeners. We'll be passing that out. Thank you for stopping by the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And let's hopefully do this again soon. Absolutely. Absolutely.